Chapter Twenty of Uncle Silas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. Chapter Twenty. Austin Ruthen sets out on his journey. The Reverend William Fairfield, Doctor Clay's somewhat bald curate a mild, thin man with a high and thin nose, who was preparing me for confirmation, came the next day. And when our catechetical conference was ended, and before lunch was announced, my father sent for him to the study, where he remained until the bell rang out its summons. We have had some interesting, I may say very interesting, conversation, your papa and I, Miss Ruthen, said my reverend vis-a-vis, so soon as nature was refreshed, smiling and shining as he leaned back in his chair, his hand upon the table, and his finger curled gently upon the stem of his wine-glass. "'It never was your privilege, I believe, to see your uncle, Mr. Silas Rithin, of Bartram Hoff.' "'No, never. He leads so retired, so very retired a life.' "'Oh, no, of course no, but I was going to remark a likeness.' I mean, of course, a family likeness, only that sort of thing, you understand, between him and the profile of Lady Margaret in the drawing-room. Is not it Lady Margaret? Which you were so good to show me on Wednesday last. There certainly is a likeness. I think you would agree with me if you had the pleasure of seeing your uncle. You know him, then? I have never seen him. Oh, dear, yes. I am happy to say I know him very well. I have that privilege. I was for three years curate at Feltram, and I had the honor of being a pretty constant visitor at Bartram Hoff during that, I may say, protracted period. And I think it really never has been my privilege and happiness, I may say, to enjoy the acquaintance and society of so very experienced a Christian as my admirable friend, I may call him, Mr. Ruthen of Bartram Hoff. I look upon him, I do assure you, quite in the light of a saint. Not, of course, in the popish sense, but in the very highest, you will understand me, which our church allows, a man built up in faith, full of faith, faith and grace, altogether exemplary. And I often venture to regret, Miss Ruthen, that Providence, in its mysterious dispensation, should have placed him so far apart from his brother, your respected father. His influence and opportunities would, no doubt, we may venture to hope, at least have been blessed, and perhaps we, my valued rector and I, might possibly have seen more of him at church than I deeply regret we have done. He shook his head a little as he smiled with a sad complacency on me through his blue-steel spectacles, and then sipped a little meditative sherry. "'And you saw a good deal of my uncle?' "'Well, a good deal, Miss Ruthen. "'I may say a good deal, principally at his own house. "'His health is wretched, miserable health, "'and sadly afflicted man he has been, as no doubt you are aware. "'But afflictions, my dear Miss Ruthen, "'as you remember Dr. Clay so well remarked on Sunday last, "'though birds of ill omen, yet spiritually resemble the ravens who supplied the prophet, and when they visit the faithful, come charged with nourishment for the soul. He is a good deal embarrassed, pecuniarily, I should say, 
continued the curate, who was rather a good man than a very well-bred one. He found a difficulty, in fact it was not in his power, to subscribe generally to our little funds, and, and objects, and I used to say to him, and I really felt it, that it was more gratifying, such were his feelings, and his power of expression, to be refused by him than assisted by others. "'Did Papa wish you to speak to me about my uncle?' I inquired, as a sudden thought struck me, and then I felt half ashamed of my question. He looked surprised. "'No, Miss Rithin, certainly not. Oh, dear, no. It was merely a conversation between Mr. Rithin and me. He never suggested my opening that, or indeed any other point in my interview with you, Miss Rithin, not in the least. I was not aware before that Uncle Silas was so religious.' He smiled tranquilly, not quite up to the ceiling, but gently upward, and shook his head in pity for my previous ignorance, as he lowered his eyes. "'I don't say that there may not be some little matters, in a few points of doctrine which we could, perhaps, wish otherwise. But these, you know, are speculative, and in all essentials he is church. Not in the perverted modern sense, far from it. Unexceptionably church.' "'Strictly so. "'Would there were more among us of the same mind that is in him. "'I, Miss Rithin, even in the highest places of church herself.' "'The Reverend William Fairfield, while fighting against the dissenters with his right hand, "'was, with his left, hotly engaged with the Tractarians. "'A good man, I am sure he was, and I dare say sound in doctrine, "'though naturally I think not very wise.' This conversation with him gave me new ideas about my uncle Silas. It quite agreed with what my father had said. These principles and his increasing years would necessarily quiet the turbulence of his resistance to injustice, and teach him to acquiesce in his fate. You would have fancied that one so young as I, born to wealth so vast, and living a life of such entire seclusion, would have been exempt from care. But you have seen how troubled my life was with fear and anxiety during the residence of Madame de la Rogere, and now there rested upon my mind a vague and awful anticipation of the trial which my father had announced, without defining it. An ordeal, he called it, requiring not only zeal but nerve, which might possibly, were my courage to fail, become frightful and even intolerable. What, and of what nature, could it be? Not designed to vindicate the fair fame of the meek and submissive old man, who, it seemed, had ceased to care for his bygone's wrong, and was looking to futurity, but the reputation of our ancient family. Sometimes I repented my temerity in having undertaken it. I distrusted my courage. Had I not better retreat while it was yet time? But there was shame and even difficulty in the thought. How should I appear before my father? Was it not important had I not deliberately undertaken it, and was I not bound in conscience? Perhaps he had already taken steps in the matter which committed him. Besides, was I sure that, even were I free again, I would not once more devote myself to the trial, be it what it might? You perceive I had more spirit than courage. I think I had the mental attributes of courage." but then I was but a hysterical girl, and in so far neither more or less than a coward. No wonder I distrusted myself. 
No wonder also my will stood out against my timidity. It was a struggle, then, a proud, wild resolve against the constitutional cowardice. Those who have ever had cast upon them more than their strength seemed framed to bear, the weak, the aspiring, the adventurous, and self-sacrificing in will, and the faltering in nerve, will understand the kind of agony which I sometimes endured. But again consolation would come, and it seemed to me that I must be exaggerating my risk in the coming crisis, and certain at least, if my father believed it attended with real peril, he would never have wished to see me involved in it. But the silence under which I was bound was terrifying, double so when the danger was so shapeless and undivulged. I was soon to understand it all, soon, too, to know all about my father's impending journey, whither, with what visitor, and why guarded from me with so awful a mystery. That day there came a lively and good-natured letter from Lady Knollys. She was to arrive at Knoll in two or three days' time. I thought my father would have been pleased, but he seemed apathetic and dejected. One does not always feel quite equal to Monica. But for you, yes, thank God, I wish she could only stay, Maud, for a month or two. I may be going then and would be glad, provided she talks about suitable things. Very glad, Maud, to leave her with you for a week or so. There was something, I thought, agitating my father secretly that day. He had the strange hectic flush I had observed when he grew excited in our interview in the garden about Uncle Silas. There was something painful, perhaps even terrible, in the circumstances of the journey he was about to make, and from my heart I wished the suspense were over, the annoyance passed, and he returned. That night my father bid me good night early and went upstairs. After I had been in bed some little time, I heard his handbell ring. This was not unusual. Shortly after I heard his man, Ridley, talking with Mrs. Rusk in the gallery. I could not be mistaken in their voices. I knew not why I was startled and excited, and had raised myself to listen on my elbow. But they were talking quietly, like persons giving or taking ordinary direction, and not in haste of an unusual emergency. Then I heard the man bid Mrs. Rusk good night, and walked down the gallery to the stairs, so that I concluded he was wanted no more, and all must therefore be well. So I laid myself down again, though with a throbbing at my heart and an ominous feeling of expectation, listening and fancying footsteps. I was going to sleep when I heard the bell ring again, and, in a few minutes, Mrs. Rusk's energetic step passed along the gallery, and, listening intently, I heard, or fancied, my father's voice and hers in dialogue. All this was very unusual, and again I was, with a beating heart, leaning with my elbow on my pillow. Mrs. Rusk came along the gallery in a minute or so after, and stopping at my door began to open it gently. I was startled and challenged my visitor with, "'Who's there?' "'It's only Rusk, miss. Deary me, and are you awake still?' "'Is papa ill?' "'Ill? Not a bit ill, thank God.' 
Only there's a little black book as I took for your prayer book, and brought it in here. Ay, here it is, sure enough, and he wants it. And then I must go down to the study and look out this one, C-15. But I can't read the name no ways, and I was afraid to ask him again. If you be so kind to read it, miss, I spec my eyes is a-goin'. I read the name, and Mrs. Rusk was tolerably expert at finding out books, as she had often been employed in that way before. So she departed. I suppose that this particular volume was hard to find, for she must have been a long time away, and I had actually fallen into a doze when I was roused in an instant by a dreadful crash and a piercing scream from Mrs. Rusk. Scream followed scream, wilder and more terror-stricken. I shrieked to Mary Quince, who was sleeping in the room with me. "'Mary, do you hear? What is it? It is something dreadful!' The crash was so tremendous that the solid flooring even of my room trembled under it, and to me it seemed as if some heavy man had burst through the top of the window and shook the whole house with his descent. I found myself standing at my own door, crying, "'Help! Help! A murderer! Murderer!' and Mary Quince, frightened half out of her wits, by my side. I could not think what was going on. It was plainly something most horrible, for Mrs. Rusk's screams pealed one after the other unabated, though with a muffled sound, as if the door was shut upon her, and by this time the bells of my father's room were ringing madly. "'They are trying to murder him!' I cried, and I ran along the gallery to his door, followed by Mary Quince, whose white face I shall never forget, though her entreaties only sounded like unmeaning noises to my ears. "'Help! Help! Help! Help!' I cried, trying to force open the door. "'Shove it! Shove it! For God's sakes, he's across it!' cried Mrs. Rusk's voice from within. "'Drive it in! I can't move him!' I strained all I could at the door, but ineffectually. We heard steps approaching. The men were running to the spot and shouting as they did so. "'Never mind! Hold on a bit! Here we are! All right!' and the like. We drew back as they came up. We were in no condition to be seen. We listened, however, at my open door. Then came the straining and bumping at the door. Mrs. Rusk's voice subsided to a sort of wailing. The men were talking altogether, and I supposed the door opened, for I heard some of the voices, on a sudden, as if in the room. And then came a strange lull, and talking in very low tones, and not much even of that. "'What is it, Mary?' "'What can it be?' I ejaculated, not knowing what horror to suppose. And now, with a counterpane about my shoulders, I called loudly and imploringly in my horror to know what had happened. But I heard only the subdued and eager talk of men engaged in some absorbing task, and the dull sounds of some heavy body being moved. Mrs. Rusk came towards us, looking half-wild, and pale as a spectre, and putting her thin hands to my shoulders, she said, "'Now, Miss Maud, darling, you must go back again. "'Tisn't no place for you. "'You'll see all, my darling, dime enough, you will. "'There, now, there, like, dear. "'Do get into your room.' "'What was that dreadful sound? "'Who had entered my father's chamber?' It was the visitor whom we had so long expected, with whom he was to make the unknown journey, leaving me alone. The intruder was death. End of chapter 20